In late December of 2007, I had just finished writing a screenplay. It was at that time that I decided to spend a couple hours on the internet to search for any interesting stories that I could write about. As fate would have it, I stumbled upon The Legend of J.C. Brown. After reading a short excerpt from a book written by author Emily A. Frank entitled Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain, I became fascinated by it. The Legend of J.C. Brown is a baffling story about a man who in 1934, at the age of 67, appears in the office of the editor of the Stockton Record newspaper in California and spins a tale about a lost treasure he had found 30 years earlier in 1904 while employed as a geologist with the Lord Cowdray Mining Company of England. Eighty eager Stockton residents, including a newspaper editor, a museum curator, a retired printer, several scientists, and other solid citizens formed a group and planned an expedition for six weeks to investigate the tunnel with J.C. Brown. The group would leave on June 19th at 1 p.m. Eighty Stockton residents waited at the designated time for their leader to appear. The Stockton police were called in, but no trace of the man was found. He had completely disappeared. But the 80 people who waited in vain for him that June day believed the authenticity of his story and they believed in the existence of the vast tunnel in Mount Shasta filled with golden artifacts. Writing down the clues I had learned from reading the legend on the internet, I decided to go to the New York Public Library to do my own investigation and see if I could solve the 73-year-old mystery surrounding the man known only as J.C. Brown. I began by carefully researching each of the clues that I had learned from reading the legend. Was there a man named J.C. Brown? Did a company doing business under the name the Lord Cowdray Mining Company of England really exist? Was the company named after its founder? Would I be able to find records for geologists or civil engineers under either of these two names? And finally, would I be able to find a man who was the right age who matched the description? In early January of 2008, my research was beginning to pay off. My analytical approach to solving the mystery was as follows. Was there a man named J.C. Brown? The answer was no. I was unable to find anyone in the United States. The next question I asked was, did the Lord Cowdray Mining Company exist? The answer was yes. I was able to find a record of it. And the follow-up question I asked was, was the company named after the owner himself? Was there a Lord Cowdray? The answer was yes, there was a Lord Cowdray. Taking the process one step further, I then asked, was Lord Cowdray a geologist like the man in the legend? The answer was yes, Sir Lord Cowdray was also a geologist. Was Sir Lord Cowdray still alive in 1934? The answer was no. He had died seven years earlier. It was at this point that I ruled out Sir Lord Cowdray as the man who walked into the office of the Stockton Record in 1934 and claimed to be J.C. Brown. I then asked the question, would I be able to find a biography on the life of Sir Lord Cowdray? The answer was yes. It was then that I discovered an autobiography on the life of Sir Lord Cowdray which I will share with you. 
So Lord Cowdrey was born Wheatman Dickinson Pearson on July 15, 1856 at Shelley Woodhouse, Yorkshire, the son of George Pearson and Sarah Wheatman Dickinson. He was an engineer, oil industrialist, and owner of the Pearson conglomerate. The Pearson firm started by his grandfather Samuel in 1844 and today known as a publishing house initially focused on construction. Wheatman Dickinson Pearson took over the company in 1880 eventually moving the headquarters from Yorkshire to London. An early proponent of globalization he built the Dover Harbor, docks in Halifax, railroads and harbors around the world and the Sonar Dam in Sudan. In 1889, Porfirio Diaz invited him to Mexico to build a railroad from the Atlantic to the Pacific. While laying track, his crew discovered one of the world's largest oil fields. He created the Mexican Eagle Petroleum Company, one of Mexico's largest firms. It was taken over by the Royal Dutch Petroleum Company, now Royal Dutch Shell, in 1919. In January of 1917, he officially became known as the first Viscount Caudre. This was the most important clue that I would need to put all the puzzle pieces into place. After making the connection that Sir Wheatman Pearson was also Sir Lord Cowdray, I was able to acquire his biography from the New York Public Library. Upon learning of his death in May of 1927, I turned my attention to someone who may have been a lieutenant in his organization. I now began again with a new set of questions. The man in the legend claimed that he worked as a geologist for the Lord Cowdray Mining Company, who appeared in 1934. Could this man have been a lieutenant in the organization? The answer was a resounding yes. Could the man have been a foreigner and have slipped in and out of the country without being detected? The answer was yes. Was there a record of all border crossings either through Canada, Mexico, or Cuba into the United States that I could trace? The answer was yes. It was then that I learned that just as a man who claimed that he had spent many years in the employ of the Lord Cowdrey Mining Company of England, I was able to use this information to link John Benjamin Boddy, being the man who appeared in the office of the editor of the Stockton Record newspaper in 1934, claiming to be J.C. Brown. The identity of the man who claimed to be J.C. Brown was really a man named John Benjamin Boddy. John Benjamin Boddy, alias J.C. Brown, did in fact work for the Lord Cowdray Mining Company of England. The man was also a geologist by trade and working his whole entire career for the same company. And just as J.C. Brown had claimed that was reported by the Stockton Record, his net worth exceeded $40 million. After discovering the true identity of J.C. Brown, I was able to track J.B. Body from Mexico into the United States to the Laredo, Texas border crossing. The 1904 date of the border crossing validated the information in the legend. Moreover, it was on that date that Lord Cowdrey, John Benjamin Body, W.E. Sayer, and Robert Adams were all passengers traveling on the Mexican National Railway steamship from Veracruz, Mexico into the United States together.
The records I found for this border crossing was in March of 1904. Their names are all on the list or manifest of alien passengers for the United States immigration officer at port of arrival. All of the men listed a home residence in Mexico City, Mexico. I then continued to search through all of the border crossings through Laredo, Texas. I discovered that in April of 1907, J.B. Body brought with him four other men. Three of the four men were geologists. The names of the geologists were Fred Kleisner, John McLaughlin, and C.M. Yeomans. All of these men were working for the Lord Cowjay Mining Company of England. And there was also a man named John Gilmartin who was listed as a valet for John Benjamin Body. They were all traveling on the same steamship from Veracruz, Mexico into the United States to the Laredo, Texas border. It was then I found something rather interesting. On John Benjamin Body's next border crossing in 1910 into the United States, when asked on the form if he had ever been in the United States, he lied on the form and said no. Then in the following year, in 1911, I discovered another border crossing where Lord Cowdray again accompanied John Benjamin Body into the United States. I was able to track John Benjamin Body 12 times over the border crossings from Mexico into the United States to the Laredo, Texas border starting in 1904 and ending in 1933. In February 2008, I contacted columnist Mike Fitzgerald of the Stockton Record and shared with him my findings. I was able to provide the columnist with accurate information without having a copy of the original newspaper article published in the Stockton Record on June 19, 1934 regarding the disappearance of J.C. Brown. After the telephone interview, Mike Fitzgerald sent via email in PDF format the original article that was written on that day on June 19, 1934, surrounding the man who was only known as J.C. Brown that disappeared without a trace after sharing his unbelievable story about ancient treasures from a Lemurian civilization living under Mount Shasta. I will share with you in its entirety the newspaper article word by word as it was written. Stockton Record, 1934, news article, J.C. Brown. Here's Brown's weird tale of Lost Village. Brown's original story as told to a representative of the record a month and a half ago, probably for the first time in Stockton, minus details concerning his personal history, follows. I found this cave while working in the Cascade Mountains for the Lord Cowjay Mining Company of England. I noticed a section of the rock in the face of the cliff which did not jibe with the formation of the reel of the mass. Entering the tunnel. After removing the rock, I entered the tunnel which curved downward, three miles from the mouth of the tunnel, which was seven feet wide and ten feet high, I struck a cross section containing gold-bearing ore. Further on, I struck another cross section where this ancient race had apparently mined copper. The air in one section was bad. I believe the other cross sections outcropped on some other part of the mountain. The decline continued and 11 miles inside the mountain and approximately 2,300 feet from the surface, I struck what I called the village.
filled with tablets. Two rooms about 12 feet by 20 feet were filled with copper and gold tablets. About 3 by 4 inches in concave so that one laid inside one another. The rooms are literally full of three plates inscribed neatly. Another room contained many weapons. The tempered copper spears was so that one could bend the head of the weapon to the base of the shaft and it would spring back into place. Streets laid out. Streets were laid out in the village. In one long room were laid out at angles to the walls 27 skeletons, the smallest of which was 6 feet 6 inches and the tallest more than 10 feet. In another room lay, apparently embalmed by some secret process, the bodies of a man and a woman dressed in royal robes, which I believe were the king and queen of this race. The worship room was beautiful to behold. There on the walls were three great crosses, not of the conventional modern type, and a sun designed, worked in copper and gold. The streamers from the sun were worked in gold stringers. There were, I believe, 13 statues made of copper and gold. Lost Race I believe this race of people forms an important link in ancient American history. They were highly skilled craftsmen, as their work shows. Because there was a glow to three of these statues, I believe they used radium, and I believe it was with the use of radium that they tempered the copper. My wish is to enlist a corp of trained people, whom I shall pay well for their services, to assist me in cataloging these specimens. I want the relics in this cave to remain intact. Those in two other caves which I have located may go to those who have aided me. Claimed Pictures In a vault in a Texas bank, I have pictures of this scene in papers. You see, my family plan to exploit the cave themselves. My wife's father, my wife, my two daughters, and an old college chum. A series of tragedies struck me. First one died, then another. One was killed in an accident, and the others died. I was hurt in an accident. I lost all heart in this ambition, but I'm getting back on my feet again, and if my health holds out, I'll get started. Have you ever read or studied anything about the lost continent of Lemuria? Scientists claim it is the connecting link in the story of civilization. I believe here is the key to that lost civilization. I will now read part two of the Stockton Record 1934 news article. Followers hold all-night vigil for missing leader on trip to find weird cave. Disappearance of chief leaves group of local people enlisted in mysterious mission pondering next step. Surprise promise unit fails to materialize while many hold nocturnal watch to await J.C. Brown's return. Eighty Stockton citizens today attempted to piece together reasons for the disappearance of J.C. Brown, 79-year-old geologist, who had promised to lead them to hidden riches by the lost race of Lemuria. Police, too, were interested and sought Brown for purposes of questioning. Brown began organizing a band of followers here after six weeks after telling a Stockton newspaper man that in 1904 he had discovered a tunnel in the Cascade Mountains leading to a cavern filled with relics of apparently a lost race. 
The newspaper man took Brown to Harry Noyes Pratt, curator of the Hagen Memorial Museum, who gave him a list of people who might be interested in Brown's story, among those John C. Root, retired printer, 1784 North San Joaquin Street. Root took Brown to his home and gradually an organization was formed with the purpose of participating in an expedition and exploration of Brown's cavern. Followers total 80. Meetings were held twice daily and the followers grew to 80 in number. Brown's original story expanded to such an extent that his followers were told and many believed that the cavern held a secret to the lost race and continent of Lemuria. Brown, despite the fact that in the early part of the year he had lived in the federal shelter, allegedly told his organization that he was worth $40 million and owned five boats, one of which a glass-bottomed craft which would arrive here Sunday to take the party north to search for the lost continent off the coast of Washington. Gave up positions. Gradually as Brown's story expanded, some of his followers report mysticism, occultism, and other groups entering into the organization's discussions. Some, it is reported, actually gave up positions and disposed of furniture and other belongings so they would be free to accompany Brown on the expedition. Leaving Ruth's home yesterday morning, Brown left word that a surprise awaited his followers if they would gather at the Root home at 1 p.m. People began arriving before noon, and most of them remained until early this morning. Brown failed to return. Proof demanded. Brown had claimed that he had photographs and other proof of his discovery in a Texas bank. The proof was demanded of him recently by Curator Pratt, and it is understood was to be given to Pratt yesterday or the latter would withdraw from any other further dealings in this matter. Some of Brown's followers were of the belief that the man had manufactured the fantastic story from one of Bulwer Lighton's novels. Some, however, clung to the belief that Brown would return and make good his promise to reveal the lost city. Psychic Information Meeting at the Root Home had attracted neighbors, some of whom thought political meetings were in progress. Police, however, began inquiring into the matter when it received a report that a Silver Shirt organization was being formed. This report was denied in the record Saturday by Root, who, however, declined to reveal the purpose of the meetings. One of the followers, who still to this day clung to his belief in Brown, said he had psychic information that Brown was all right. Amnesia Victim on an index card in the federal shelter is listed information that Brown suffered as an amnesia victim in 1932 and that he entertained fear that time to time he was being followed. He told his followers that being a millionaire he feared being kidnapped and therefore appeared incognito. One of the leaders in the organization denied this afternoon that the organization was a religious cult. Brown had a most fascinating story and many of those attending the meetings were interested in the study of mysticism and occultism. Unless a person understands or has some knowledge of these matters, he could not understand the meetings, the leaders said. 
What's Lemuria? The natural question of the initiated is, what is the lost continent of Lemuria? After much poring over encyclopedias, one finds it is the mythical continent believed by scientists to hold the key to a lost civilization. A well-educated man, Brown achieved what he had been told would be impossible, the organizing of a large party without the semblance of proof for the fantastic story which he used as a lore. What was Brown's objective? That question today had police as well as his followers, some of them unshakingly yet in their faith pondering. Never sought money. So far as the police or the writer has been able to discover, Brown never asked for one cent while in Stockton. The only money which he received from any person was five dollars given by a friend while the man lived at the federal shelter so far as could be learned. The only other question is Brown's mental state. Those with whom he associated assert he is rational despite a notation on his federal shelter record that he was an amnesia victim in 1932 and on three occasions reported that someone was following him and threatening him. The fear that he had met with foul play was expressed last night among those who waited in John C. Ruth's home as they gathered in his house or on the front porch and in the backyard awaiting the surprise. Master is not ready. Among those who waited, one could count those imbued with the spirit of the seed sown by Brown that the mysterious excursions aboard a glass-bottomed boat, a story which did not figure in Brown's original tale, had not been willed by the Indian masters to start at this time. Who were the Indian masters? They are the masterminds traced to East Indian mysticism who ruled Brown's actions, who protected him, and were to tell him when the time was proprietous for the start of his expedition. It was the will of the masters, one man said as he sat smoking on the front porch. If the masters could not protect him, they could not protect us when we got there. We could all be annihilated in five minutes. He didn't say where he was going, did he? No, he always went alone. Perhaps he's been kidnapped. He had been once before, you know. He promised us a surprise. Well, it's here, isn't it? He didn't return at one o'clock. In March, I completed my preliminary research on the legend of J.C. Brown at the New York Public Library. It was at that time that I created a press release and revealed my findings. In April, I contacted Suzanne Northrup and was invited to be a guest on her show on talk radio. Later that same month, on April 18th, I was a guest on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie to discuss what I had discovered concerning the unsolved mystery. After going public and appearing on Coast to Coast, I was contacted by one of the listeners. Shortly thereafter, we began corresponding with one another by email. The listener sent me a CD about Mel's Hole that she thought might have a connection to my research. After listening to the CD, I called the listener and we became friends. In June, I traveled to Olympia, Washington to meet the listener. On the following day, the phone rang and it was a friend of hers who was a Native American elder from the Nisqually tribe. 
She asked him how he was doing and explained that she had a friend over who was visiting from New York. After a second, I noticed a look of surprise on her face, and then she looked at me. She slowly took the phone from her ear and handed it to me and said, He would like to speak with you. I was a little surprised and took the phone and said hello. I recall now being taken aback by the instant connection with this man. We spoke briefly, and then he said he needed to talk with me and said that he was coming over. I hung up the phone and looked at my friend, and she looked back at me, still having the perplexed look on her face. She told me that it almost seemed like her friend was expecting me. She continued to say, As soon as I told him that you were here, he said, Good, I need to speak with him. At that point, we just looked at each other in total astonishment. Within an hour as promised, the Nisqually Native American elder arrived. My friend put on a pot of coffee, and we all sat in the living room to talk. We talked about many things. One in particular we got around to was how my friend and I met as a result of being a guest on Coast to Coast. He then asked me what the show was about and I told him. The man listened attentively to every word I had to say as he drank his coffee. And all the while I was thinking how in the world did he know I was coming. He then asked me if I could take a walk. As we both walked towards the front door of the apartment, I internalized the question, what did this man want to share with me? My friend stayed back at her apartment as we took our walk outside. It was then he began sharing with me some of the legends from his tribe, the inner earth, and what he referred to as the tall ones. The giants you were referring to do exist. We call them the tall ones, and we are their descendants. The Salish native elder went on to say that they live on the Mount Rainier as well. I then asked him if he or anyone in his family had ever seen one. He proceeded to tell me that his grandfather had visually seen them in a canoe fishing on the Nisqually River. I then asked him to describe them and he told me they stood around eight to nine feet tall, had long black hair and wore buckskin clothing. He then added that the tall ones live in the hollows of the earth and can dematerialize at will, making themselves invisible. He ended his story by sharing the history of the last 500 years since the time of Cristobal Colon, known to most of you as Christopher Columbus. Then the squally elder laughed and said, We tried them all. They didn't work. I guess they wanted us to forget our oral traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation. In the second week of July, I was handed a book by my newfound friend to read by Native American author Vine Deloria, Jr., entitled Red Earth, White Lies, Native Americans. I didn't realize that this work would be a critical element in my research. It was in this book where I was able to make the connection for the timeline of when the Native Americans were first discovered living in North America. The evidence I discovered gave a date and an explanation for the origin of North America. In 1951, Dr. Stanley Lee, an archaeologist for the museum in Ontario, Canada, found ancient bones of four ancient groups at a site in Shagwanda, Ontario, Canada. Three of the four groups were described as Native Americans, first being Salish, the second Sioux, the third Algonquin. The fourth group was described as bearded white men. The site was dated at approximately 42 to 50,000 years old. 
Dr. Lee went on to state that after a major flood, the Salish relocated to the Pacific Northwest, the Sioux to the Plains States, the Algonquin to the Great Lakes area, and the fourth group of bearded white men headed east to Scandinavia and Western Europe. Dr. Lee's archaeological discovery, if accepted by scientists, scholars, and society, would change the Bering Strait theory and place the Native Americans in North America 30,000 years earlier. This might also explain how the fourth group of aggressive bearded white men who went to Scandinavia were responsible for the annihilation of the Cro-Magnum man. If the Native Americans were here for over 40,000 years, then the stories of the Great Flood handed down in oral Native American tradition are true, and the animals, plant life, fauna, and ecological system could not have come from Asia. Could this explain the United States government's true purpose in forcing the Native American population to live on reservations to keep the origin of man in North America secret? Could this also explain why indigenous cultures throughout the world have been brutalized, colonized, and Christianized? In November of 2008, I was sent an email from a man named James who I had become friends with after he listened to my interview on Coast to Coast with George Nury regarding the legend of J.C. Brown. James emailed me a story written by a man who claimed that he had stumbled upon an unusual basalt volcanic rock formation that led to an underground civilization living under Mount Shasta that he called Telos. The article was written by a man known as Brad. Brad claimed that he and his daughter were hiking in the ancient volcanic mountains of Dunsmuir, California, walking off a heavy Thanksgiving dinner from the day before when something extraordinary happened. It was while they were hiking that they discussed the folklore surrounding the Mount Shasta region and the Lemurian civilization said to be living in a massive cave city within the volcanic mountain. Brad and his daughter rounded a corner and came across a rugged basalt rock with two doors. They stopped and took photos. When suddenly a tall figure wearing a long robe greeted them speaking with a slight British accent. Brad and his daughter asked the man where he had come from and he replied, from inside the mountain, the city of Telos. The man said they had found one of the back entrances to Telos, and he graciously invited them in. Even though Brad and his daughter were curious, they were quite frightened, and so they declined. The figure then disappeared as quickly as he had arrived, but before leaving he swore Brad and his daughter both to secrecy, never to reveal the location of the doors to Telos. Brad concluded his story by stating that until this time, he and his daughter considered the Lemurian civilization to be mere folklore. After reading this story, I jotted down in a notebook all the clues I had learned by reading the article. Included with Brad's remarkable story was a photo of the unusual basalt volcanic rock formation. Studying the photo closely, I was of the belief that there were no coincidences in life and that this photo was going to be a key component in my quest to solve the legend of J.C. Brown. For nearly a year I had gone over all the clues. It was my theory that Lord Cowdray and J.B. Body, alias J.C. Brown stumbled upon the basalt volcanic rock formation by accident while vacationing at the Shasta Springs Resort in Dunsmuir, California. 
The Shasta Springs Resort was located three and a half miles north of Dunsmuir, California. Shasta Springs was the most famous resort located in the upper Sacramento River Canyon. Trains would stop here so passengers could drink the natural spring water. The drinking of Shasta water reported to have beneficial results and was used as a remedial agent. Some of the passengers would disembark on the platforms and head for the Incline Railway which for five cents would take them to the main part of the resort which was situated high above the railroad tracks. It was my belief that Lord Cowdrey and John Benjamin Body were vacationing at the resort. While walking out or near the property they noticed an unusual rock formation. Lord Cowdrey and J.B. Body, geologists by trade, considered this to be an important discovery. They both agreed that they would return at a later date to dig out the tunnel. I then compiled all the information in chronological history of the Shasta Springs Resort. Afterwards I created a file folder on my computer with photos and a map of the property. I printed out a map of the property and studied the map closely. I had a strong feeling that the tunnel I was searching for was either on or near the Shasta Springs Resort. It was now time for me to take the circumstantial evidence that I believed to be correct and travel to Dunsmuir, California to solve the legend. In April of 2009, on the anniversary of my coast-to-coast -coast interview, I decided to go to Mount Shasta and search for the tunnel. In May, I headed to Dunsmuir to find out Brad's true identity. I was able to get in contact with a longtime resident of Dunsmuir who, as luck would have it, knew Brad very well. The man was kind enough to provide me with Brad's last name and then he gave me Brad's personal email address. Later that evening I shared the information with a friend who I had met in the Mount Shasta area who was also interested in the unusual basalt volcanic rock formation. I gave my friend Brad's email address and asked him to contact him. Soon after my friend's email to Brad inquiring about his remarkable story that he posted on the internet he was sent the following response dated May 28, 2009. Brad added that the doors indeed close off lava tunnels that go northeast towards Mount Shasta. The tunnels bring glacial waters from Mount Shasta to Dunsmuir. These same tunnels are also the source for Mosprey Falls north of Dunsmuir. Armed with this new information and the map, I began hiking and exploring the area that surrounded where the Shasta Springs Resort was once located. It was on the second day of exploring that I came across the strange looking basalt volcanic rock formation that J.C. Brown had claimed that he had found many years earlier. From the location of this unusual rock formation it was approximately 11 miles from the base of Mount Shasta just as J.C. Brown had claimed in his legend. Upon further investigation of the tunnel, I learned that the tunnel had been sealed off and blocked off and now being used to supply the city of Dunsmuir with the water that comes from the glacial mountain of Mount Shasta. My search and quest in solving the legend had taken me over 3,000 miles from New York City to Dunsmuir, California. Who was J.C. Brown? Well, I want to take this time to share it with everyone. 
My search began in New York City. I traveled 3,000 miles to Dunsmuir, California to solve the riddle and the mystery of the legend of J.C. Brown. I will now share with you the man who showed up in 1934 in Stockton, California who claimed to be J.C. Brown. The following are the memoir of John Benjamin Boddy found in the American Society of Civil Engineers call number ZAN-V1056 that can be found on page 1554. Died May 23, 1940. John Benjamin Body was born on February 27, 1867 at Megavgesi, Cornwall, England. He was the son of John and Mary Ann Harris Body. He was educated at the City of London College under Professor Harry Adams. After six years of training in Great Britain, Mr. Body proceeded to Mexico. His choice of a country in the Western Hemisphere for his work in the profession was the outstanding feature of his career. From the date of that choice until his death, he devoted his professional services to the interests of one firm only. Thus, in 1890 to 1940, he identified himself with the activity of Sir Wheatman Pearson and Son Limited civil engineering contractors. This is the dominant factor of his life and a recital of the great works executed by that firm in Mexico is necessarily a statement of the achievements of John Benjamin Body in the profession because under the direction of the late Wheatman D. Pearson, the first Viscount Caudre, all of these works were brought to fruition. The following are the chief activities in which Mr. Body participated. The drainage of the Valley of Mexico, 1890-1904, this was accomplished by a canal 30 miles long, 20-7 feet deep, costing $7.5 million. The Harbor Works of Veracruz, Mexico, this required 260 cubic yards of masonry, 1 million tons of rock and breakwaters, and 12 million cubic yards of dredging in the inner basin. Subsidiary work for the city's sanitation and water supply, and for the port, dock, and warehouse equipment were involved. The total value of the works was $12.5 million. These works were in progress under John Benjamin Body from 1896 to 1899 and involved a serious struggle against yellow fever and malaria. The Trans-Isthmusen Railroad at Tehuantepec, Mexico. This standard gauge railway was constructed together with the harbors of Coatzacoalcos on the coast of Mexico and Salinas Cruz on the Pacific Ocean a distance of 210 miles. The railway and ports were of modern character with ample capacity to handle the heavy trans-Isthmian traffic of goods between eastern and western United States and the Hawaiian Islands before the completion of the Panama Canal and the diversions of the traffic to it in 1914. Mr. Body was engaged on these works from 1899 to 1901 and they cost $15 million. Mr. John Benjamin Body was also very instrumental in the development of petroleum production in Mexico and the establishment of the Mexican Eagle Oil Company next occupied his intention with Sir Wheatman Pearson and Sons. The necessity of a local cheap fuel oil supply for the Trans-Isthmian Railroad locomotives 
and electricity generating plants of the ports was the incentive for this development. In the course of time, the products of the Mexican Eagle Oil Company found their way to every corner of the globe. Mr. John Benjamin Boddy was ultimately concerned with the development work in this great undertaking. A maximum product of 20,000 tons of petroleum daily was reached, all of which was turned into fuel oil, asphalt, lubricating oil, gasoline, kerosene, paraffin wax, and other industrial products. All of the refining was done in Mexico with the manufacture of the packages required. Distribution was organized within Mexico and to all the principal consumption centers of the world. John Benjamin Body's interest in this remarkable development continued until its activities with the Republic were taken over by the government of Mexico in 1938. In temperament, Mr. Body was democratic and genial. He had the gift of always getting the best out of his associates and assistants. In 1915, he returned to England, where he resided until his death. However, during the 25 years between 1915 to 1940, he made many trips to the United States and Mexico. On August 10, 1898, he married Mary Hammer, who with, he had one daughter. Patrice Millicent Kelton survived him. Mr. Body was elected associate member of the American Society of Civil Engineers on October 2, 1895, and a member on May 2, 1900. I'd like to end by saying thank you to everyone for listening to The Legend of J.C. Brown.